This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, My Last War, a Vietnam veteran's tour in Iraq. And the author is Charles M. Grist. And Chuck joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Chuck. Hello, Steve. How you doing? Good to have Glad you with us. With well, Glad to be here. Well, we appreciate you, especially all your service, and we'll talk about this, your military service for, uh, sounds like, a whole lifetime. And But before we get into the details of your book, I just wanted to read your introduction that you wrote, how you would tell a friend in just a, a short uh, explanation what your book is about. This is what you said. Central Florida police officer Charles M. Grist is one of the few Vietnam veterans to have served as an enlisted soldier in the Iraq War. In 2004, he became the leader of the COBRA team, the protective service detail for an American general in Baghdad. And some words that would best describe your book, you write dangerous, exotic, adventurous, and also the characters are professional, determined, and you use the word brotherhood. Why did you write the book, Chuck? Well, i tell you, I, I think primarily I wanted to uh, tell the story of my team and uh, what we went through during our, during our tour and, and taking care of our general. Um, but to be frank, I also wanted to talk about some of the things that I witnessed around me, the people that we knew and the people that we served with, some of the heroic deeds uh, that they performed uh, around us. And, uh, and, and they were amazing, amazing people. And I served with warrior citizens. I served with members of the Army Reserve and the Army National Guard. And, uh, and a lot of times we, we think that, that when we go to war, it means the active Army but this war could not be fought, and most wars in the history of America could not be fought without their warrior citizens. So it's a tribute to the people that I served with in the Army Reserve and the National Guard. And I also wanted to do this from the perspective of a Vietnam veteran who was uh, serving as a soldier in what would be his last war, uh, 34 years after my first, uh, first war in Vietnam. Now this all started officially in September 1970? Well, actually, I, I first enlisted in the Army. Uh, I spent a little. I spent about a year and a half at the Citadel, it's a military college in South Carolina. I enlisted in the Army in December of 1968 uh, as a as a private. Uh, served in the I enlisted for infantry airborne training, and I went to uh, infantry uh, basic and AIT. I qualified for infantry officer candidate school. Went back to Fort Benning. Uh, graduated from OCS as a second lieutenant when I was 20. Uh, served with the Rangers at Benning and went to Ranger School and Jump School, and then I volunteered to go to Vietnam, where I was a platoon leader with the 1st Cavalry Division, uh, the 3rd Brigade, 2nd Battalion, 8th Cavalry, uh, from 1970 to 1971. Uh, I got back from Vietnam, uh, like a lot of veterans. I didn't want to, I had no interest in remaining in service. I quit, quit, uh, going to, didn't go to drills, didn't continue with my officer education, so I lost the commission. I was out for almost 10 years. 
And then I was talked into coming back in. I was convinced to uh, come back into the uh, reserves, and I enlisted as a sergeant and uh, and began a, an off-and-on, again, relationship with either the reserves or the National Guard uh, until, my, until 2001, when I, at that particular time I was uh, serving in an Army Reserve training support unit as a military police trainer, and we mobilized a bunch of units in 2003 to uh, go to Iraq. And in 2004, I was recruited to... Uh, go to Iraq as the uh, sergeant in charge of the protective service detail for a a general in Baghdad. Now, when you first volunteered for combat duty, uh, you say many of your civilian friends would refer to this as a death wish. And that's the way it was back during the Vietnam era. You have to remember we're talking two different eras. We're talking about the Vietnam War era, when, when soldiers were not treated with the respect that they are today. Everyone, people had a tendency to, to wonder who in the world would want to serve their country. Uh, you know, I'd rather get my college deferment and go to college and, uh, and stay out of it. Why would you want to do that? You want to get killed? And so uh, people, would, people kind of gave you a hard time back then. Uh, and, again, the hard time continued when you came home. Uh, today's a little bit different. People, uh, people admire you for your service. I, I watched how... And part of the book covers that toward the end, what it was like to come home from Vietnam versus what it was like to come home from Iraq. Quite a bit, a bit of a difference uh, in the reception. So, uh, but, uh, but yeah, a big difference in uh, two generations and how, how it was perceived uh, that you would choose to go to war. And I volunteered both times. So why did you first go? Why, why would you enlist and ask to go to war? You come during the Vietnam era? Correct, correct. Well, once again, my uh, I came from a, a family. My father, and again, that's, uh, that's part of the beginning of the book, is what convinced me to to enter the military in the first. I came from a family that, that where the men had always served in the military. My father was an infantryman in World War II. Uh, my parents, uh, my parents, as I grew up, my parents told me stories about my ancestors who fought in the American Revolution. Uh, understanding that you are born with patriot blood flowing through your veins. Uh, it does instill some sort of obligation upon you to uh, carry forth that tradition. And so I, I truly believed in my country. I was always a very patriotic guy. And, uh, and so I, I wanted to serve my country in, in the military and, uh, and, and chose to do so. And, of course, when you're a young man and you're full of, full of uh, all this desire, you, you end up in combat and people start trying to kill you and, and you're watching your friends get shot and your friends die, and then suddenly all the glamour is gone as you realize it's no longer a John Wayne movie. It's a real, it's a real thing, and it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it, it begins to uh, slowly uh, dissolve pieces of your soul away, and you, you, it becomes no longer a, an idea of patriotism, mom, apple pie, and all that. It becomes a survival of the fittest. And, uh, and all of us who came home from Vietnam, we left as young men with the typical innocence of young men in their 18, 19, 20, 21-year-of-age range. We came back as uh, men who were old before their time. And, uh, and so it, uh, it, it takes a lot out of you, but just like I tell people today, as a police officer, I run into trouble with veterans frequently. I tell them that what happens is you must take what happened to you as a warrior and you must let it make you a better man, not a worse man. And, uh, and, and most Vietnam veterans have done just fine. But as in any war... There are those who have, have problems. How would you describe the difference between Vietnam and then going to the war in Iraq concerning a statement you make, when soldiers go to war, they want to win. Don't send them to half wars. 
Describe if there were different feelings about the two engagements, the two wars that you've been in. Well, Vietnam, I think the biggest problem with Vietnam is that it was fought as a half war. Uh, we never went in uh, with the proper philosophy of, of, of victory. It was always meant as a holding action. And, and Vietnam, you know, it's like if I tell you to stand there and I draw a circle around you, and uh, the only time you can hit me is when I stand and step into the circle, but when I step out of the circle, you can't do anything. Uh, this is what it was like in Vietnam. The North Vietnamese could move at will through uh, Laos, Cambodia. They could uh, come in and attack us, flee, and, and for most of the war, except for one brief period in 1970, we were not allowed to go get them. Uh, America never launched an invasion of North Vietnam. So the enemy at the time, the North Vietnamese, pretty much had free reign in their own country with the exception of some, some bombings uh, and free reign to move and establish bases uh, around, uh, around South Vietnam. Uh, we've got the similar situation today, where, uh, where, as in in Iraq, you've got you've had the sanctuary for the Sunnis in uh, in uh, Syria, you've had the sanctuary for the Shiites in Iran, uh, and so we they've got free reign to do what they will, and then come back into Iraq. Now we've managed to stabilize Iraq with uh, by strengthening the Iraqi military where they can pretty much handle it themselves. The South Vietnamese military never, they, while they have some outstanding units in the South Vietnamese military, they never achieved, I don't think, quite the level that the uh, Iraqis have uh, or will over time. Uh, Afghanistan, same thing. You've got the safe havens in northwestern Pakistan, uh, the safe havens in Iran, uh, all these places where the, the terrorists and the uh, Taliban can, can train, regroup, rest, do whatever they want, and as long as you have these beehives that uh, continually produce new terrorists, then you will never completely win. Uh, and uh, and so I, I believe what George Bush said when we were attacked, and that is you're either with us or against us. Pakistan seems to be trying to do the best they can, but there is no alternative but to clean out northwestern Pakistan. If you don't do that, it doesn't matter what you do in Afghanistan, you will never succeed. Give us a little description of the Cobra team you were part of in Iraq. We started off as an eight-man team in the States, uh, trained by a major who was a U.S. Marshal, who later had a, a very violent ambush by insurgents, which is covered in the book. Uh, by the time we got to Kuwait, manpower uh, requirements reduced the team to the four of us. Uh, the major that had trained us was assigned elsewhere, and the four other members of the team, uh, they went elsewhere as well. Uh, the four members of the team were all police officers, all, all stateside cops, uh, and so our job was to uh, take care of Brigadier General Charles Sandy Davidson, who was the uh, um, head of the civil military office at the U.S. Embassy, and uh, to take care of him has meant hundreds of convoys uh, throughout Baghdad and, uh, and taking him elsewhere in Iraq, to northern Iraq, to Kurdistan, to, to the southern parts of Iraq around Babylon, places like that. And to make sure our job was not to go out and hunt down the enemy, our job was to avoid the enemy to protect him. And so uh, that was the mission of the Cobra team, which consisted of myself, uh, Staff Sergeant Aaron Self, uh, Sergeant Chad Higginbotham, and Sergeant John Actus, who was our medic. We called him Doc. I also noticed that you have listed, it looks like, all those who were close to you or you worked with throughout the years in the military, you've listed their names and what they did? Okay, you're talking about in the book? Right. 
Well, in the, in the beginning of the book, I give I, I acknowledge, acknowledge those, them. Yes, I acknowledge those who uh, who helped me with the book, those who uh, helped me throughout uh, throughout what we did, and uh, and those who we worked with, and and so yes, those those acknowledgments are in the beginning of the book. Yes, they are. Now, and I notice you acknowledge like uh, some some uh, different. Uh, uh, we see a lot of. American soldiers' names, but we also see like the warriors of the Kurdish, and how do you pronounce that? Peshmerga. Yeah, the uh, when we traveled to northern Iraq with uh, General Davidson, uh, we uh, initially flew to the far northwesternmost military position in Kurdistan, which is right at the corner of Syria, Turkey, and Iraq. And from that point on, the Kurd, the Kurds have their own private army slash militia called the Peshmerga which means uh, those ready to die. And these people have been taking care of the Kurds for 60-plus years, and, uh, and they, are, they are just a, an extraordinary group of warriors. And, and from that point on, we were taking care of the general, but the Peshmerga were taking care of all of us. And they escorted us on a convoy, which went from far northwestern Kurdistan all the way across. We made a couple of different stops uh, uh, in northern, northern uh, Iraq, which is Kurdistan, and... Uh, and they guarded us the entire way. And, and like, you know, we made, the thing about being taken care of a general is you associate with so many people uh, in the uh, civilian aspect of the country. We became friends with many Shiites, Kurds, Sunnis, uh, and, um, and once again, the common thing of all, all citizens. You know, you go into Iraq, and the vast majority of the people in that country are just wonderful people. Uh, the vast majority of Muslims are just kind and gentle people. It's the radical factions in each of the Sunnis and the Shiites and the Kurds that caused the problems uh, in the country. It's not the people themselves. They're, they're good. And uh, I have met, although I have not been to Afghanistan, I helped train some uh, Afghan police and soldiers at Fort Bragg, and, and, and most of them were just fine, very warm individuals. And, uh, and so uh, serving with men like the Peshmerga in Kurdistan uh, just was a, was a very rewarding experience. Give us an example of a close call that you had from an insurgent attacks. Well, we were on our convoys. We were shot at a few times. Uh, the very first night in the Green Zone, we were shot at. Uh, we went up on the top of our headquarters building to uh, to check things out. I think the most, the closest calls we had were from the rockets and mortars which rained on the Green Zone. 2004 was a very pivotal year in uh, in Iraq. It was the year that the Iraqis took charge of their government. It was it was the year that there were two uprisings by the Mahdi army, which was led by Muqtada al-Sadr. And so there were, uh, it, was a, it was a very violent, violent year. And so uh, many close calls, mortars and rockets landing around us, uh, and, and some of them literally on the other side of the wall from where we are. Uh, and so we had a lot of close calls from those. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, the convoys, you know, IEDs going off on, on units in front of us, uh, just as we're rolling up on them, uh, and you know, we've we've driven through locations where the insurgents were set up uh, for an ambush on the side of the road. We had a small convoy; they chose to ambush the, the vehicles just behind us. So those are the kind of things that happened to us. Once again, we were not on a, in a combat role to go out and find the bad guys and, and shoot them. We were in a role that our, our role was to protect our general. Even in larger convoys, had we been had our convoy been ambushed. Our job would have been not to stay and fight, but to move the general to safety. And so uh, the the process of, of of weaving our way through the web of war in Iraq is the story 
is the front is the is the backstory. The front story is the, the the people we were around, the experiences that we had, the unique and the unique and exotic place. You know, back in Iraq is Mesopotamia. It's one of the oldest places in the world. We we stood in Babylon on the very on the very uh, path where Alexander the Great and Nebuchadnezzar walked. Uh, Babylon is where the where the Jews were taken in captivity after they were captured by Nebuchadnezzar, where the earliest books of the Bible were written. So it wasn't it was it was the war, but it was also the realization of where you were, and if you were only the latest army to play a a, a role in the timeless history of a of a of a historic land. Chuck, tell us how to get your book. Well, the website is www.mylastwar.com. Uh, that's my website for the book. Uh, you can go to almost any online retailer. Uh, you can go to uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, you can go to my publisher, iUniverse.com, and, uh, and, and the book is available there. Uh, and by the way, it would make a great Christmas gift. It really would, and it would be very appropriate with all the things that are going on in the world today to honor our veterans and, and to honor you, Chuck. Thank you so much for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. That was Charles Grist. He is the author of his book, My Last War, a Vietnam veterans tour in Iraq. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Womb of Uncreated Night, a novel, 
And the author is Chris Antonides, and Chris joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Chris. Hi. The Womb of Uncreated Night. I love it. <laughs> well, that's a line from Milton. There you uh, go. From the Paradise Lost. Um, uh, it's a speech given by uh, one of the fallen angels. Um, in this case, a man who is considered most slovenly, uh, an angel who is considered the most slovenly of the angels by Milton. He, uh, he makes a speech uh, about what, what, what they should do having been kicked out of heaven now, what, what, what are we angels going to do? He's one of those. <laughs> well, uh, your angel here is going to be a, a very strange angel indeed. Um, I want to read what your introduction would be to a friend in just a couple sentences about your book. I, this is what you wrote. A six and one-half foot nearsighted teenage Batman wannabe who may or may not be a nutcase... <laughs> A psychiatrist who almost certainly is, and a vampire who wants to achieve world peace with a government of an intellectual vampire elite who will rule by hypnotic suggestion. Now, that is a stretch in every direction. Congratulations. <laughs> you also said that, you know, if you had to sum your book up in three words, you said you couldn't do it in three words, but you said I could modify that to. Quote, human aspirations inevitably generate absurdity, unquote. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, a friend of mine had read the, um, uh, had read the, uh, the novel before I got it all put together and, and asked me, you know, if you could sum this up in, in five words, what would you say? And uh, <laughs> that, really, that really stuck me for a while. And I thought about it, and I said, all right, uh, uh, it'll go like that. And... Um, and I, I think it's true. Um, uh, people uh, try to impose order uh, out of chaos and out of the mess of their lives, and inevitably um, they run up against uh, the absurdity of their existence, uh, or the absurdities, since it's more than one. And uh, it, it, it's, it's something that people make... Well, let's put it this way. Um, it seems sometimes the more you try to make things better, you make them worse. Well, Chris, why did you write this book? All right. Well, it all began when I saw um, Michael Keaton as Batman many years ago, and I thought, I've read the Batman comics since I was a kid, you know, when they first came out. In fact, I even had Batman comics number one, and too bad I didn't hang on to it, because today it would be a very valuable commodity. Anyway, uh, when I was um, thinking about Batman movies, uh, I was struck by the fact that the villains, the Joker and, uh, and people of that kind, were always more interested, uh, interesting than Batman himself. Batman himself, with his super gadgets, without his gadgets, he's really rather boring. Um, he really doesn't seem to have much going, but... Um, the villains were, were very interested. So I thought, well, how could I make Bruce Wainwright, Bruce Wayne, the um, civilian form of Batman, you know, before he puts on his costume and goes out to save the world, uh, how could I make him more interesting? And I thought about it, and I finally decided that I would be best off uh, writing about a 
kid growing up in New York who fancies himself a superhero and instead of uh, writing about Batman that was out of the comic book sections, um, instead, of, instead of trying to rewrite Batman and make him interesting, I would um, take a character who uh, would have Batman-like behaviors, would take on some of his responsibilities, but would be in an entirely different context. So instead of putting him in Gotham City and uh, uh, becoming a great crime fighter, uh, I, I settled on a uh, kid who um, has poor eyesight and under the influence of a tutor um, begins to fancy himself as a kind of Batman incarnation. That makes a lot of sense, and it's a lot of fun right at the beginning uh, when this Brewster Wainwright uh, dressed as Batman. He's taking a spin around New York City in his Batmobile. Now, now, what is his bat? His Batmobile really looks like the Batmobile. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> explained later on in the novel. Okay. Um, uh, the the point was to begin with a dramatic introduction and have him suddenly plunged into the situation. You know, when you begin any kind of epic, you're supposed to begin in the middle of things. Well, it begins in the middle of things with Brewster. Brewster Wainwright has a curious uh, similarity of name with Bruce Wayne, and his tutor gives him the idea that he might be uh, uh, a doppelganger, you know, and uh, he explains in the novel that a doppelganger uh, could be like an evil twin, uh, except that Brewster would not be evil. Uh, he would be good. And so he would be um, an alter ego, uh, a doppelganger, uh, someone who would be like the original uh, Bruce Wayne, but uh, be unique also. Um, his tutor even suggests that maybe he could be... reliving Bruce Wainwright's experience. And so he grows up with this this mixed feeling. His parents are a little cold, too, so he's susceptible to this kind of thing. His parents uh, have their own interests, and because of his nearsightedness, extremely nearsighted, um, he uh, grows up rather alienated from other kids. So he develops this, this persona which is basically well-motivated, but, uh, as I've said elsewhere, he's a little absurd uh, because uh, he's up against a world um, which doesn't really fancy uh, being rescued by superheroes and finds them a bit of a nuisance, in fact. Well, they really don't take him very seriously, do they? No, And, and that's, of course, what I've tried to do in the opening chapter, where uh, Brewster is confronting the police at the precinct where he's arrested because he's gotten into an accident with his Batmobile. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, inevitably, you know, and, and I don't know what you know about New York um, City, but anyone who tries to drive around New York City in an automobile is a little deranged to begin with. <laughs> then, of course, if it's a Batmobile, it's even more deranged, right? Well, yeah, and I mean, um, it's very nice in Gotham City for Bruce uh, Wayne 
to go zooming around town the way he does. But you couldn't get anywhere in New York City. There's just too much um, uh, traffic jam, you know. There's, there's just traffic all over the place at all hours of the day. Maybe between the hours of 4 and 6 a.m., it wouldn't be so bad. But that's a very narrow window to try to save the world. Of course, in this book, we have the villain, a vampire. So tell us about the vampire. Well, the vampire, in fact... Um, uh, is a European model. Um, <laughs> he is, in fact, a pupil of Dracula. And um, the point of the uh, development of the novel is that you have a character in Europe in the 19th century growing up uh, under privileged circumstances, but very different in character from Brewster. So as Brewster grows up and develops his persona, this vampire figure in Europe grows up and develops an entirely different and what most people would consider evil persona. Even, even though he recognizes that um, um, there's a lot of absurdity in the world and he tries to uh, find a way to resolve the problems no, he looks around. He's a very privileged character growing up during the middle of the 19th century. Well, that was a period of great upheaval historically in Europe. Uh, he's a German. He's from Weimar. Uh, and his name, by the way, is a kind of joke. Wagehalsen. Um, Wagehalsen uh, in German is a daredevil. Okay? Well, literally, Wage means to risk and Halsen uh, your neck. So he said he risks his neck. I thought it was a cute little joke about <laughs> about the vampire. You see, but he he looks around him and sees um, uh, many people trying to um, develop the democratic uh, input into their governments in Europe. This is a period when everybody has a king and a queen, or a, king, a queen, and um, everybody is. Uh, Getting a little lower, the lower middle classes are getting. Uh, well, they're losing. They're losing their patience with what's going on. They're restless, and so they strive for independence. And you find uh, uh, repeated attempts on the parts of the Poles, for example, um, to get free of Russia, um, of the uh, Germans, to overthrow uh, some of their. Uh, restrictive rulers uh, of the French to get rid of uh, their own tyrants and so on. And the Italians, uh, there, there are a series of small revolutions leading up to uh, an attempt to create a new world in Europe. And so this man, Bagalson, looks around and sees all these people and every one of their attempts to establish kind of democracy, uh, ends up backfiring and uh, being repressed. And so he decides, well, uh, there's no point in trying to save these people. They can't save themselves. And so he decides, um, it, it, not consciously, it's just that he runs into Dracula, and Dracula gives him the idea that perhaps he can rule, uh, develop a system of rule another way by getting people uh, 
under a hypnotic spell. This is not a new idea exactly, but it's a new angle, I think. Uh, although Dracula, uh, depending, on, <laughs> depending on how much you know about the original Dracula written by Dra Bram Stoker, uh, Dracula had the idea of sort of invading England and uh, dominating a part of uh, England with vampires. But he didn't seem to have a clear idea of what he was doing. And so Lagerhoff, you see, takes his idea and runs with it further. Uh, he is going to, um, in fact, he gets the idea of trying to implement a new world order by having a rule of intellectual vampires. Uh, uh, he borrows a little from the leading figures in European literature, for example, uh, notably Victor Hugo, who wanted to establish a, uh, a, a world government of uh, intellectuals. And he wanted it run by editors, writers, artists. He had this idea of having a United States of Europe in the middle of the 19th century. And Wagehausen tries to recruit Hugo when he's in exile. I don't know uh, how many people will know immediately about the background history, but Hugo uh, goes up against Napoleon III. Louis Napoleon is his bete noire, and so Victor Hugo speaks out against him, eventually gets himself into a great deal of trouble, and finds himself under imminent arrest, running off to the Channel Islands to escape the tyrant. And from there, he takes pot shots at Napoleon. Uh, so it gets, it gets involved in the European history of the middle 19th century. And the vampire eventually makes his way to New York City and, of course, has confrontations with Brewster Wainwright. Yes, except that there is a kind of shift. There is a mysterious um, event in which the vampire, when he eventually finds his, his ventures in Europe uh, unsuccessful, uh, has to leave. And so he escapes to Europe, uh, he escapes Europe to America. And he comes to America, but the question is, does he really go on living or does he infect others in America and they carry on for him? So there's this question about whether the vampire that appears in the middle of the book is exactly the same as the one who appears, who develops and grows out of the book uh, throughout uh, the uh, first, second, and third parts, uh, whether he is really the same person or whether the psychiatrist is having a hallucination. In fact, there is a clear case that uh, psychiatrist is having psychotic episodes in which he imagines that he is seeing uh, Vagals. He, he, he comes across a journal reportedly written by Vagalson in which the vampire's history is laid out now. He reads this to Brewster. Brewster and he sort of get interested in this thing. And the psychiatrist uh, gets interested in it first. And he sees uh, 
a vampire outside his window. Well, he's in a 30-floor high-rise in New York, and finding someone floating around the, uh, outside your window has got to be uh, <laughs> uh, something of a... A bit alarming. Alarming, to say the least. <laughs> yes. Well, Chris, very uh, different take on Batman, and also, of course, we have to say that there's always a girl involved, and we won't go into any more details, but Guinevere, Batman's girlfriend, is also going to be right in the middle of all this. But before we leave, we need to find out where we can get this book. Well, it's available online um, through booksellers like Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, and there are several others, uh, I think, that I have uh, noticed somewhere uh, on the web. But uh, it has, it's a print-on-demand book, so the book cannot be bought at the local store unless it happens that a local bookseller decides to stock the book. And that's always a possibility. It can be ordered through a local bookseller, of course. But you can order it direct uh, on the net. Well, Chris, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Very interesting, uh, very uh, different, and I'm sure everyone will enjoy this take on Batman. Well, thank you. That was Chris Antonides. He is the author of his book, The Womb of Uncreated Night, a novel. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The America of My Dreams, A Political Manifesto. And the author is Dom Sigambaloni. And Dom joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dom. Hello. I guess this is an expression of your frustration and at the same time your understanding that people have the rights to really make changes in their government, isn't it? That is correct. I strongly feel about that. 
How did this all come about? What prompted you, motivated you to write a book about it? I've lived in the States for about 45 years, a little over 45 years. And over the years, particularly the last 25, I've seen this country essentially lie down the tube, you know, with politicians taking, taking advantage of it or manipulating it or really selling it out. You know, I love this country. Okay, that's my main motivation. And uh, I reached a point in my life where I want to do something. I don't want to sit back and say, well, you know, there's nothing I can do. There's something I can do, and uh, if I can uh, raise awareness and uh, anger in, you know, the people, a lot of people, maybe something can be done. Well, you say this uh, in writing about introducing your book. You say, if you read this book, your hair will stand up. Yes. <laughs> it is controversial, as I am proposing drastic changes at all levels of government. That is entirely correct. It is a provocative book. It is controversial, I'm sure, because a lot of people are not going to like what I have to say. But then again, <clears throat> changes are needed. Uh, we all have seen what's going on in Washington today and at the state levels, and some drastic changes are in order. Tell me about your feelings about, first, we'll do both parties, but let's start with the Republican Party. What are your feelings about the Republican Party? Well, you know, I was a Republican for a long time, and I voted, you know, somewhat conservative for a long time, but over the last uh, 15, 20 years, I've seen the Republican Party really becoming a party for the rich, uh, of the rich, for the rich. <clears throat> they they really don't understand the working stiff. They don't understand, uh, you know, the working population. They lost touch with them, and I don't trust them anymore. The Democrats, on the other hand, what they want to do is convert this country into perhaps a totalitarian socialist country, and I don't think that uh, we're ready for that. So uh, we need an alternative. and We need uh, something that uh, goes in between the two of them, uh, some kind of a populist party, one that really represents the interests and the feelings of the people. We, the people. And you call that party the American People's Party. Yes, I do. So tell us a little bit about that party. Well, you know, this is in the embryonic stage, and <clears throat> that's just a thought for now. You know, it is my idea of setting something new up, <clears throat> something that will appeal to independents, people who are disgruntled with the politicians that with the system we have today, <clears throat> uh, also some politicians who are disgruntled with their own parties, Republicans or uh, Democrats, you know, and uh, basically uh, this would be the, the first stepping stone for the new party. And I hope to basically draft some good uh, national leaders who can uh, take the banner and take just uh, run with it. I will be right behind them and help them in any, in any which way I can. You'd like to change the way the president is elected? Yes, I do. So how is that? Well, you know, <clears throat> if you have seen the last couple of elections, and I'm sure you have, but particularly the last one, you know, the, the uh, uh, essentially, you know, we had the, with the problem with Michigan and the problem with Florida, where the, the, what the people wanted didn't even count. In other words, the politicians make the backroom deals, and the will of the people isn't even taken into account. So did we have a better choice uh, between the two candidates? Of course we had. But uh, does anybody want to go through that? 
I don't think so. So we have to find a better way to do it. And uh, rather than have, you know, small states at the beginning basically lay the groundwork for the selection of any one candidate, I think that all states should, uh, should have something to say at once, uh, let alone, you know, have New Hampshire or Iowa first and then maybe months later California, New York, or Florida. So the way we select the candidates must be changed, and the way we elect the president must be changed. What kind of a role does history play in your views, you know, the Founding Fathers, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution? The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, was written in an era time, an era, where, you know, the, the, the country came first, and the people were in the forefront of our forefathers. They want to, for the people to be happy, pursue happiness, and so forth. But times have changed. Ever since World War II, uh, you know, came to an end, uh, the world has changed. And, uh, you know, in today's age where, you know, we are living in a dangerous world with uh, threats from all over the place and so forth and so on, you know, we need to do something better. We need to take care of our needs. We need to take care of our people. We need to take care of this country. Why do you want to merge the House of Representatives with the Senate. What good would come of that compared to what we have right now? Okay, um, I'm a businessman. I've been in business for a long time. And, uh, you know, in essence, uh, I want to see <clears throat> a smaller government, one that's lean and mean and that costs a lot less. By having uh, the House of Representatives and the, and the Senate, what you have, there are two bodies independent of one another. They pretty much do what they want. And in the end, it is the people that suffer. If you take the health care bill, you know, that's in Congress now, you've got a version that uh, the House has been struggling to pass, and finally they did pass something. Then you got the Senate, they want to come with something else. This is a process that, process that drags on and on and on, and in the end it takes time, it takes money, and nothing gets accomplished, nothing meaningful. What I want to do is have one body, expand the Senate, you know, from 200 to 400 people, and uh, essentially have one body help the president help run this country. You also see a lot of inequities in the Social Security system. I most certainly do. What would you do to change it? Well, you know, that's uh, pretty well laid out in, my, in, my, uh, in, my, in, the, in the book itself. Uh, the thing is that, you know, the unions are being taken care of, the railroad employees are taken care of, the employee uh, from the states, the federal government, they have their own plan. But the people who do not belong to any union and make $10, $15 an hour struggling to make a living, these people don't have the means to put a lot of money aside and save. <clears throat> so at the end of their working life, what they have is just, a measly Social Security pension would at this time, it doesn't, it's not enough to pay rent. So, you know, people that have connections, they're, they're union members or belong to some, some organization or another, they are taken care of because the union people, for example, they take the Social Security plus they have a pension from their own union. Now, they make a good living at the end, and they should because, you know, they worked all their lives as well. But I want people from all walks of life to be able to retire with dignity and make at least enough to take care of their own basic needs. 
You also see some real problems in a, as you call it, an inadequate education system. Yes, indeed. This may be another one of the explosive, uh, if you will, provocative, uh, controversial issues. You know, uh, if you go back to the uh, revolutionary times, what you see is each community having to take care of itself. Now things have changed, okay? Now you have uh, the educational system that are being financed uh, by real estate tax, local real estate taxes, okay? So, for example, the city that I live in, Cranston, Rhode Island, has to fund the school system. The next town over, Providence, Rhode Island, has to fund its own needs for the school system. Then if you go a little west and you find uh, towns that are really poor, with a tax base very low, they don't have a lot of money. So what happens is that uh, the rich communities, people uh, that live in the rich communities can't afford to pay higher taxes, and with those higher taxes, those communities can get what they want. So the the communities with very uh, low tax base, with poor people uh, and so forth, don't have the means. They have to do what, what they have, and uh, they're struggling to get by. And in the process, their kids, the kids in those communities, they are suffering and not getting a good, wholesome education. And I want to change that. I want a system that's fair to everybody, anybody of any color, race, or creed should be able to get an education free of charges, and the state and the federal government should pay for it. Well, you cover a lot of different areas of government, uh, the presidency, the general election, the new Senate, the Supreme Court, the Social Security system, the taxation system, economy, foreign policy, affirmative action, the health care system, illegal drugs. Here's one, the drinking age. Tell us a little bit about your views on the drinking age. (laughs) Well, I, I, I put that in only because it is, you know, a trivial, you might say, issue, <clears throat> but it is one that does not show any common sense. You know, I mean, uh, you know, we have a draft, I mean, we have an age of 18, 17, 18, uh, where a young man or a young woman can enroll or can enlist into the Marines or Air Corps and so forth. These people can get drafted to go into combat to Afghanistan, to Iraq, or any other parts of the world where there is a conflict, they're 19 years of age, okay? They're good enough to carry a rifle. They're good enough to risk their lives to protect you and me, but they're not good enough to have a beer when they come back home. Does that make any sense? Of course not. At least it doesn't make any sense to me anyway. Well, then you talk about, uh, oh, here's one, the English language. What what do you mean, uh, what are you talking about in that area, in that section of your book? What I am talking about here is that, uh, you know, uh, is that I want the English language to be the language of this nation. I don't care if people uh, speak Spanish, or Filipinos, the Chinese, Italian, <coughs> French in their homes. But in schools, in the offices all over the country, that the English language should be the one, the common denominator for all nationalities. We don't have that now. We have some school system, you know, that uh, I understand that um, if you don't speak Spanish, you cannot teach. And in the process, you have uh, uh, people of uh, Spanish descent, Latino descent, that uh, you know are getting shortchanged because you know uh, they don't learn the English properly, and then eventually that's going to uh, uh, penalize them in the, in the working uh, world. 
You talk about changing the roles of mayors. Explain that. Well, you know, I can be a little bit more specific on this because we have a mayor here in Providence and, uh, you know, uh, we have other mayors in uh, uh, throughout the country without being uh, too specific. Okay, and these people, they think sometimes they're above the law. For example, uh, you know, if uh, a mayor... Like we had the one in San Francisco, for example, does not like some of the federal laws or state laws, he just ignores them. You know, you have seen that with uh, we have seen that with uh, with uh, the the immigration illegal immigrants in San Francisco roaming free with uh, with the basic protection of the uh, city system. I mean, the mayor is also a citizen, and as such, he should obey all laws. If he does not like the law, and then he should do something to change them. But as long as there are laws on the books, he and everybody else should obey them. I want to change that. I want the mayor to be an administrator of the city's affairs. I don't want him to control his police department. I don't want him to control the fire department. And I don't want him to control the school department. These are the three major things that I want to take away from the mayors. What do you think it would take to implement all of, of your concerns here and, and of your uh, ideas, what would it take? Well, you know, uh, I understand that I, that I am covering a lot of stuff here, a lot of issues, <clears throat> and that this is not something that can be done by me or, or any one individual. This is a grassroots movement that needs to basically get started. And, uh, and as, as, as long as people are willing to put their time and efforts to organize this new party, at the city levels, at the state levels, and federal levels, and the party can get some kind of visible leaders. You know, I'm not, I'm not looking to be uh, a candidate of anything. I'm not looking for anything into politics. But I would like to see someone, someone, let's say, of the stature of Sarah Palin, pick up the banner and say, okay, we're going to be independent from everybody else. So this is our platform, and this is what we're going to do in the next uh, uh, 10 to 20 years. It is something that's going to take time, and it's, take, uh, it's going to take some time to digest it, and then eventually uh, either accept it or just walk away from it. Dom, how do we get your book? Well, you know, my understanding is that the book is uh, you know, available now on Amazon.com, and it is also available on the iUniverse bookstore. Uh, and uh, also, you know, if uh, anybody wishes, they can visit my website, at the www.theamericomydreams.com. We want to thank you, Dom, for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. That was Dom Sagambaloni. He is the author of his book, The America of My Dreams, A Political Manifesto. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.